Lord, I'm just crazy. CITR 101.9 FM. This is the Ink Stud Show, the radio show where we talk about comics. I just realized I forgot to get a mic set up for my f- fellow in the studio today, Ms. Dr. Paul Stanwood. How you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks, Robin. Good. And on the phone, I have Jeet. Hello, Jeet. Hey, it's good to be here again, uh, Robin. Good to have you, Jeet. You are uh, a regular fixture here. Um, if we were cheers, you would have a stool, and uh, it would be your stool, and no one else could take it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know uh, if that I'm was a very good... i do it by phone. So, <laughs> um, so I have uh, two special guests here today because we're going to talk about a specific book, um, Robert Crumb's Genesis. And uh, both of uh, my guests come from different, I guess, uh, specialties of knowledge. Jeet being a uh, 
as uh, I was having a conversation with Seth the other day when he was in town, and he said you're a treasure for comics. Oh, that's very kind. Because of your uh, your academic and uh, endeavors into kind of the establishing comics and that kind of uh, dialogue and conversation. And Dr. Paul Stanwood here is a professor in the English department at University of British Columbia. Um, and your specialty, if tell me if I'm wrong, is specifically Renaissance and classical literature. That's it. Yes. There we Earlier go. Earlier 17th century uh, English literature, especially. And uh, I took a class with Paul uh, last fall, that was, a year ago, um, in classical and biblical literature. And when this book came out, when Crumb's book came out, I kind of thought this would be interesting to have a dialogue about this, looking at the context of reinterpreting biblical text now. And um, there's something that really struck me in, in the class where... Um, you were just talking about how uh, literature, traditions within literature, I guess, and how literature kind of follows on in different traditions, but it all kind of has a root, and it all kind of connects, and that's kind of stuck with me in comics. Yes. So Robert Crumb's specific choice with Genesis kind of interweaves the two, I guess. Yes, I'm sure it does. Um, that's right, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, the Dr. Stanwood, uh, just from uh, his CV, has uh, uh, written a lot about John Donne and George Herbert, who are like the sort of great religious poets in the English tradition. Yeah, so, that's right. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, obviously, religion has uh, played a very strong role in both literature and in the visual arts, and Crumb sort of brings the two together. So I, I, I'm sure yeah. we'll have an interesting conversation. <laughs> yes, I'm sure we will. Uh, of course, this is earlier than anything. This, what, 2,000 years before the Common Era? So the Greeks were not even thinking about uh, such matters. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, one of the interesting things that uh, we were discussing beforehand is that the book doesn't feel religious. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point, Robin. Um, It's interesting because uh, I'm sure that... uh, Many of the writers uh, Professor Stanwood uh, teaches were coming out of, like, you know, uh, out of theology. You know, John Donne yes. was a preacher, <laughs> uh, yes. and uh, Herbert was a very religious man, as was Milton. Uh, whereas, you know, we're sort of, well, there's still many religious uh, people in the world today, but we're also living in a uh, sort of post-Christian world where there are many secular people. And what's interesting is that despite secularism, the interest in the Bible hasn't diminished. That um, mm. uh, I was thinking about this because Crumb is doing Genesis, and there's a lot of books I've read by fairly secular writers that use um, religious uh, themes. I was just reading a book of poetry by Katha Polyp, an American poet, and uh, there's a whole suite of poems that are based on the Bible, uh, and she's a very uh, secular writer. Yeah. Um, so it's a very interesting phenomenon, the sort of um, persistence of... Uh, religious literature in, you know, arguably a post-religious mm-hmm. age. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure that's true. But but Genesis, after all, uh, has has been read and reread and been thought about, mm-hmm. you know, for centuries, hasn't it? Uh, I I'm, I'm impressed by the um, some of the remarkable figures, like the serpent, um, in chapters well one and two and three. Mm-hmm. Um, if if Milton were thinking of a serpent, I I don't think he could do better than this one. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the, the serpent is uh, interesting. Perhaps we should 
maybe describe it because one of the uh, features of the Genesis story is that the serpent we have to presume had some sort of like arms and legs because it, yeah. the serpent is cursed by having to crawl on the ground. So yeah, the supposition right. is that prior to being mm-hmm. cursed, uh, when it was in the Garden of Eden, the serpent, you know, had, um, uh, which is the way that Crumb described it, sort of as a science fiction type uh, lizard. And it really, he yeah. captures perhaps in the portrayal of the serpent, the sort of slithering evil yes. and uh, sort of the demonic energy. Uh, of the serpent. Yes, I'm sure that's true. He does, or he, she, it, Mm -hmm. becomes really rather, rather pathetic in that, uh, that image. Mm -hmm. Uh, On your belly shall you crawl in dirt, shall you eat all the days of your life, and so on. Looks like a kind of innocent garter snake, doesn't it? (laughs) In in the book. Where, Where before the serpent really is, is, you know, he's wonderfully anthropomorphic. He really is, hmm, well. <laughs> One thing I'm curious about um, leading into Genesis is in order to tell the story, you kind of have to pick your translation. Um, was it Robert Alter? Oh, yes. That that Crumb chose. And that was based on original uh, Torah or another translation? Uh, well, no, no, Robert, Robert Alter, uh, who, who actually visited us uh, at UBC a year ago, had a good deal to say about his own translation. He feels that there weren't any translations that are adequate apart from his own. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, he may well be right. The, the translation he makes of Genesis does seem t- to me really very uh, interesting, lively, and I I should have thought quite accurate. He's he's very close, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he no, is, that's right. Well, I think he's a Hebrew one, scholar after all. Sure. Yeah. Well, I think one point to perhaps make is that like ideals of translation change over time. Mm-hmm. That you know the yeah. translation that perhaps most of us are familiar with is the King James uh, translation, um, which is also itself based on earlier translations uh, from Wycliffe. But the the yes. thing is that it was written at a time where they had you know marvelous sense of language. It was the age of Shakespeare. Yeah. But on the other hand, they didn't have the scholarly resources that we do today. Mm. Um, and especially like in the given the last century or two of work in archaeology, and also the real renaissance of Hebrew as a living language. Yes. I I think Crum was very wise to choose uh, uh, Alter's translation. That's right, that's right, yeah. So, I mean, Alter's aim is for a real fidelity to the Hebrew, uh, even at the expense of, like, um, uh, easy understanding. That The the ideal is that, you know, these are very important words, so even if they don't, like, flow smoothly, we want to get as close as we can to an English equivalent. Um, And so um, Crumb's choice... uh, uh, tells us something about that. He also he yeah. doesn't completely keep with Alter though. At certain points, he sort of harkens back to the King James for the sort of uh, the literary resonance or uh, perhaps the poetic power. Yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, occasionally he does. Mm-hmm. Though generally the the language uh, moves very nicely. It's quite colloquial. Mm-hmm. Uh, much it it it's much more approachable for more people. I'd have thought who would mm-hmm. pick this book up to read it in this in this translation. Every word is here, as far as I know, uh, that that occurs in Genesis. Uh, 
One review I read, because I haven't read Alter's text itself, I read a review by John Updike where he, uh, one of the criticism I think was the uh, overuse of footnotes, and I guess in this mm. case, does Crumb's illustration replace that descriptive aspect and make it a little more palatable? Mm-hmm. That's uh-huh. interesting, yeah. Go, Go ahead, G. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, the, the, that's very true. I don't think Updike's criticism of Alter is really just in that sense, because I think one of the things that Alter is trying to do is to suggest that biblical Hebrew is very resonant and also has a lot of, like, ambiguity, or yeah. there's, uh, there's a lot of meaning, in layered meanings within the words. Oh, yes, that's and very true. And so the, his textual commentary was very sort of necessary, and I found it very helpful. Uh, and, and Krem's, but you're right, that Krem's pictures sort of take the place of the footnotes, the, 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 the pictures themselves are sort of commentary on it, because um, obviously the Bible has no pictures. <laughs> and so, so any pictures that someone does, any illustration of the Bible is also an interpretation of the Bible. That's very true. Well, yeah. there are pictures, but none, none so sequential as here. Yeah. There are various pictures, that, and pictures that people have imagined. That's right, yeah. Um, oh, no, there's a long tradition of people visualizing the Bible and of illustrating the Bible, but I'm, I'm just yeah. talking about the, the Hebrew text as it stands, yes, right? It, it was, uh, yeah. It's purely taxed, and it comes, maybe you, you can uh, yeah, um, right. say this better than I do, but it maybe comes out of a tradition that distrusts images to a certain degree. Yes, I think you're right. Yes, that's true. Uh, well, the, the images are imagined, the imagined pictures... Mm-hmm. Um, that, that I've been familiar with, uh, that I've seen in the past, uh, are, are mostly those highly ro- romanticized, um, mm-hmm. uh, visualized things um, that soften and, and give a kind of um, nice patina to, to the events. There's nothing like that mm-hmm. in, uh, alt- in, um, in, in Crumb's imagination of, of, of the uh, text, is there? It, this is not a romanticized <laughs> yeah. view of, of uh, Genesis. No, 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 that's very true. And I think that's um, uh, a really important point to make, that I think Crumb was partially responding to earlier uh, traditions of visualizing the Bible, and especially of sort of the earlier comic book versions of the Bible mm-hmm, that he yeah. grew up with. Um, there's a famous series in the 50s, Picture Stories, from the Bible, um, which not only tended to have those romanticized images, but they also tended to take out things that might offend or uh, upset people. So the story yes. of uh, Noah and his sons, there's no mention of Ham seeing the nakedness oh, oh goodness, no. of his father. <laughs> and uh, uh, DC Comics, the, uh, the wonderful people that give you Superman and Batman, yep. in the early 70s, they did a picture version of the Bible as well. And yeah. from their account, the sin of the men of Sodom is that they were greedy. They came up to Lot and they asked for money, <laughs> which yes. is uh, uh, not... So, so, so Krem is responding to this tradition to balderize or to soften the Bible. Um, and, and there's also mm. a kind of interesting aspect, too, that um, he's bringing an ethnicity to the Bible, that a lot of these earlier visualizations of the Bible imagine the biblical characters as, you know, you know, white Anglo-Saxon, North Europeans, you know, blonde with blue eyes. 
That's right, and they're rather nicely dressed as well. <laughs> yeah, and so, I mean, this is a, in, in that sense alone, it's a more historical Bible because the people in his version very much are Middle Eastern. They, they, they look like the, the yes. people you would meet in that part of the world, uh, which I, is obviously a very conscious decision on his part. Yeah, I'm sure that, that's, that's very much the case. I, I remember one picture, particularly of Abraham and Isaac in, in an early Bible uh, I was given as a child. Uh, Abraham is is about to slay Isaac, of course, but it it all looks, you know, like the sort of thing one would do on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> uh, and I think Crumb does it very much avoid that sort of thing. So, yeah, I, 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 should we say something more about the uh, the the ethnicity as a good point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have something to add to that, or? Um. Sure. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there is a. An interesting aspect with both the Jewishness and then also perhaps the Arabnic, Arabness as well, because um, he Crum takes seriously the the um, uh, the interpretation that uh, Ishmael um, uh, mm-hmm. was the father of the Arabs, and if you look at the his rendition of the uh, um, uh, the genealogy of Ishmael and the the, the uh, descendants that came from uh, Ishmael, yes. uh, they they do ha- uh, sort of have. Um, uh, Arab type features, or more particularly Arab type dress. Yes. Uh, so I, again, that's a very sort of um, interesting uh, choice to make. Uh, a, the um, uh, so part of this perhaps comes from the fact that uh, Krem himself, um, although he's um, uh, uh, not Jewish himself, is married uh, to a Jewish artist, um, Aileen Kominsky Krem. Uh, so uh, there's the, that element um, perhaps played a, a part, but also I think that this goes back to the issue of the translation, that just as Alter is trying to have a fidelity to Hebrew yes. rather than the sort of English literary tradition, uh, Crum is trying to have a fidelity to the, um, uh, the Hebrew ethnicity. Uh, you know, it, mm-hmm. it's part of this attempt yes. to have a sort of historical uh, or a more historical Bible. It's yes, that's true. It's kind of a cultural, mm-hmm. specific cultural decision. Yeah. And yeah. Crum was raised Catholic, wasn't he? That's right. Crum was raised Catholic. And um, if we want to talk about it, I mean, I think he's uh, left that a long time ago. Yeah. And he's, uh, very much, but he's very much uh, uh, interested in spiritual matters. He's um, uh, has uh, often sort of, uh, in his stories, talked about, you know, sort of pondering these sort of existential questions of faith and the purpose of the universe. And, uh, you know, prior to this, yeah. one of his most powerful stories was where he illustrated the, the mystic visions of Philip K. Derrick, mm-hmm. the American science fiction writer. So I, I think it's fair to say that Crum has a long-standing interest in sort of mysticism and religion, and I, 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 would, I, I think a respectful um, interest. Like, I think, um, the, the, we, we said earlier, this is not the book of, drawn by a believer, but it's drawn by somebody who takes you know religion seriously. Of course he does. Uh, yeah, I, I, I see. He he was raised in a secular household, headed by. Uh, I'm reading from a, a, a few a few notes from a, a mm-hmm. Globe and Mail review of uh, a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Raised in a secular household that was headed by a rigidly strict former U.S. Marine father, who was actually a closeted atheist. Uh-huh. Interesting, a closeted atheist. <laughs> oh. Mr. Crum was sent off to Catholic school to age six because his father had always admired the discipline Roman Catholic nuns were famous for instilling in their <laughs> students. 
We never got a lot of religion at home, Mr. Crumb says of himself and his siblings, but we certainly got the whole indoctrination and brainwashing in school. And so 60 years on, he's about 65 now, mm -hmm. here he is uh, with this rather complicated story of Genesis. A good place? No. He's saying, no, it's not a good place to look for spiritual guidance or moral guidance. <laughs> <laughs> Genesis. I don't believe it's the word of God. Well, but still, the stories are powerful, uh, and he doesn't mean to belittle them in any way, but to tell things uh, so far as he can the way they are. On that note, <laughs> I'm going to do a quick song break, and we'll be right back. Okay, great. <laughs> putting me on. God said no. Abe said what? God said you can do what you want, Abe, but uh, next time you see me coming, you better run. Well, Abe said, well, you want this killing done? God said on down Highway 61. bloody nose. Well, fair department, they wouldn't give him no clothes. They asked poor Howard, where can I go? Howard said, there's only one place I know. Sam said, tell me, quick, man, I got to run.
And we're back. Ink Studs, CITR 101.9 FM. I've got two special guests with me this week. I have Cheat here, Ink Studs regular, and uh, noted Canadian uh, comics expert. And I've got Dr. Paul Stanwood from the uh, UBC English Department. And uh, we're talking about Robert Crumb and Genesis. Uh, that was uh, Bob Dylan's Highway 61, um, which I kind of... Or Highway 61 Revisited. Is it just Highway 61? Or Highway 61 Revisited, there we go. Um, which I kind of chose specifically because it kind of fits with the conversation because the song is basically about Abraham and Isaac, all the beginning is. and mm-hmm. Which fits with what we're doing. It's uh, reinterpreting um, old stories in new versions. And uh, Bob Dylan, being a Jewish musician, would have grown up... I don't know how secular his household was growing up. Do you know, Jeet? I, my sense of it is fairly secular. Um, he himself had a religious turn a little bit later in his life, um, but that wasn't from his background. That was uh, but born I again. But I think it's actually it? perhaps relevant because Bob Dylan was one of you know the great singers to emerge from the 60s, which is also the year uh, that Crumb first uh, uh, came into prominence as a cartoonist. Um, and so in that sense, there's some commonality in the sense that I actually think the 60s generation, although they're seen as being rebels against um, uh, the established social order, um, were also perhaps rebelling against what they saw as the spiritual sterility of 1950s America, the sort of post-war America, mm-hmm. with Crumb with his, you know, marine closet atheist father, you know, <laughs> who just wanted to, you know, in- use Catholic indoctrination as a, a power tool. Um, so, yes. so, so there was like a sense in which. In the in the sixties, um, uh, among the counterculture, you had a turn towards the spiritual. Um, uh, perhaps a cheesy example of this is the musical um, uh, Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> but, uh, well, I've but got a slightly <laughs> feeble, but <laughs> one, well taken. One, one uh, more direct example is uh, Ginsburg, who was a huge info. Uh, beats oh, were all yeah. pretty big influence on Crumb. That's right. Yeah, yeah. And Ginsburg is an excellent example because his poetry is saturated with, especially, sort of uh, the Hebrew Bible and. Uh, Yes. And the prophets, uh, Jeremiah, he had a psychotic episode where he thought he was Jeremiah at one point, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah. So, so in that sense, we can perhaps contextualize Crumb's uh, decision to do Genesis as part of that, that sort of story of the 1960s generation and their, the rediscovery of spirituality and of these um, religious traditions by uh, people who didn't necessarily grow up in you know, very religious households. Now, at the back... Crumb provides um, his own footnotes mm-hmm. on his uh, on his work. I guess I'm, I'm almost using footnotes kind of liberally because mm-hmm. w- one thing that kind of bothers me within the footnotes is he makes a lot of points but doesn't cite his points. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a that's another discussion, yeah. I guess. Um, what we're going to talk about, or what I'm wondering about, is the specific points he makes, and one is the discussion of matriarchy mm-hmm. within the book. Um, do you feel he does it justice? What, how do you feel about the, the role of matriarchy in Crumb's adaptation? Either uh, of you? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, I mean, there's, there's kind of a lot to say there. I mean, the footnotes are not um, as uh, detailed as, say, Robert Alter is. These are not scholarly footnotes. No, they're really uh, comments they about chapter by chapter, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, having said that, he does make some interesting points about where he's getting some of his ideas, and especially uh, it's useful um, in pointing out uh, that uh, he relied on a Hebrew scholar, Savina 
Kubal, who um, wrote a number of books uh, uh, about the um, uh, biblical matriarchs, especially uh, Sarah and Hagar. And um, uh, Tabal has um, uh, had one of her basic points is that there was a, uh, a matriarchal tradition as well as a patriarchal tradition. And uh, she actually made a very interesting point, which is that we, we tend to think of the genealogies in the um, Hebrew Bible as the patriarchs. It's like, you know, Abraham begat you know, so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, and it yes. seems like it's an all-male line. But she said that if you actually look at the main uh, family stories of who is being followed in Genesis, these are all the descendants of Sarah. There's, there's a little That's bit right. about yes. the descendants of Hagar, who are, uh, you know, like, sort of peripheral members. But So uh, one of the points that um, uh, Tibal made uh, is that this is very much uh, a society where... Um, uh, hereditary is traced along uh, uh, matriarchal lines, and this perhaps gives us some indication of the, the role and power of women as keepers of cultural tradition. Yeah, that's fascinating. Savina Tubal and Sarah the Priestess. That's right. 1984, yeah. Who exposes the uh, underlying, buried, hidden, distorted sense of these stories about the women. Sarah, mm -hmm. Rebecca, Rachel, Leah... All very cogently. Mm -hmm. hmm. I, 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 I was struck by the fact that um, never quite occurred to me that Abraham uh, had what some six further um, descendants who who just vanish. Mm -hmm. Nothing ever is said of them. That's right. We're, we're, the, the Genesis is very much interested in who comes out of the line of Sarah. That's uh, right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, which is a very sort of important point. Now, of course, uh, you know, this being scholarship, there's always controversy, and there's many uh, people who have said that, you know, Tabal's work is very speculative and, and whatnot, but I, I, I read it um, mm -hmm. uh, yes. uh, when I was working on my review of Crumb, and um, uh, it's certainly very suggestive, and I think that she is on to something that um, w even within the text of Genesis itself, you can see that there was a matriarchal background. Um, at one point, one of the patriarchs orders the women in his household to destroy their idols, Oh, that's uh, right. So it's yes. very clear that they had been bringing these household idols, which are the, the exactly what in that type of society the women would guard, right? Yes, the, the, they're, uh, they're looking after them, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, and certainly Genesis is um, one important point is that, like all the biblical books, it's a polemical book that it's very much written to set a point, uh, certain point of view across, and also to polemicize against other points of view. So throughout Genesis, there's sort of uh, polemics against uh, polytheism, right? There's the suggestion of, like, why, you know, this god is the real god, and, like, all the other gods. Um, yeah, well, uh, it's, it's monotheistic, isn't it? Very, yeah, yeah, it's monotheistic. So. Yeah. And, and I think that there is a sort of patriarchal polemic within it, but simply because there's a... But we have to think that if there's a patriarchal polemic, it has to... It, counter something. There has to be a patriarchal uh, counter-argument that it's going against, right? Yes. So we can read this text against the grain and see that it, despite the fact that it's heavily patriarchal, it does have um, uh, take place in a context that also included uh, matriarchal tradition. Yes. Um, obviously a number of women <laughs> are, are, are significant, yeah, and, and they have to be discovered. When when they aren't there, we must find them. Mm -hmm. There's that section, isn't there? Um, 
in, in my reading through the uh, the book, I was I was struck again by how very episodic uh, Genesis is, mm-hmm. um, and also s- seeing certain uh, episodes next to each other makes one realize how, in a way, rather incoherent uh, a good mm-hmm. bit of Genesis actually is. Yeah. Uh, the first two chapters, mm-hmm. uh, they're, they're two accounts of creation, very mm-hmm. clearly, obviously. Yeah. Um, although some wouldn't like to say so. Mm-hmm. But I think it's clear that there are, from these illustrations, one, uh, one, one, one recognizes, well, here we have, at the end of chapter one, mm-hmm. uh, there they are, Adam and Eve. And then we seem to start all over again in chapter two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Yeah, no, no. I, I, there are like a number of sort of uh, uh, contradictions in the text. And it, it, mm-hmm. it, um, uh, um, the point is exactly right that uh, one of the, func- one of the uh, side effects of being illustrated is that these sort of come to the fore, that you can't. Like, when, I think when we're reading, we perhaps glide yes. over. Like you know, what's actually happening in the story? I think that's very true. Yeah, yes. and and mm. so uh, the um, in some ways the illustrations force us to slow down, and also force us to perhaps be thinking more along the lines of what is what exactly is happening here. Um, some some of the illustrations are um, indeed rather curious and graphic. Um, they are quite anthropomorphic, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you depict God? Uh, yeah. A, a, apart from all this, this long hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's, it's, it's very true that, well, the, that's a kind of a, an, also a sort of paradox within the sort of monotheistic tradition that um, um, later on in the Bible we have very much a sense that God is outside of space and time, that he is this sort of, he's holy other, to use yes. the language of theology, That's and you right. can't see God, like not even Moses could see the face of God. But in the early chapters of Genesis, you know, God is like a regular guy, he's walking <laughs> yes. around, you know. He's your uncle that shows up and tells you what to do. That's right, yeah, he's, 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 he's like very present. So um, in, in that sense, like even to illustrate God is very much a dramatic choice. Um, I know, like, yes. if, within certain religious traditions, the idea of, like, you, is that you can't illustrate God, right? Like, God cannot be shown because he is, he, his, even his name can't really be said. That, that, um, that's right. In the Tetragrammaton, you wouldn't do that. You, you can't even speak the name of God or write it. That's right, yeah, uh, yeah. But here he is. Yeah. And, and clearly he has very, very strong views uh-huh. um, from time to time. Uh, he doesn't necessarily have any any reason for what he does. I was thinking of um, hmm. uh, there there are instances where someone he doesn't like, and so he just zaps him, and that's that. Mm-hmm. Mm. It seems like throughout the book, the the God character um, gets nicer and nicer. Uh, or, or, or is less mean. <laughs> it's more remote. Um, yeah, it's rather different. Obviously, in the uh, the last part of Genesis, God doesn't figure in the same way at all. Uh, the, what is it from chapter thirty-seven on to the the end? Uh, Joseph and his mm-hmm. brothers. Yeah. that's a, that seems a very a different and distinct part of Genesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite unlike uh, most of what's gone before. No, that's right, yeah. I mean, I don't know to what degree we want to talk about 
biblical scholarship. <laughs> my sense is well, that I the, better not. <laughs> the uh, I mean, the, the, the text was not written at one point. Because, um, those people who study the sort of languages can pinpoint, mm. uh, or at least try to pinpoint, w- when things were written. And it's clear that this is not you know, a coherent book written by one author. It's a collection of stories yes. that had pre-existed over several generations, and then were yep. later brought together, and then also heavily edited. I mean, that's the main thing, that the, uh, when Genesis um, was finally nailed down, there was a lot of sort of, um, uh, there was a very conscious decision in the, fi- in the final editors to um, include certain things and take certain things out. Yes. And so, so that later story of Joseph and his brother, it seems to fall into um, uh, uh, that era um, of uh, Hebrew culture where God is more distant, where God might show up in a dream, but, you know, he's not coming into your tent and you have to, like, you know, serve him food as you do uh, in the time of Abraham. <laughs> yeah, very much so. Uh. How how do you feel this works as a reinterpretation of biblical work as far as creating a new narrative? Um, one thing I was thinking about, especially from, from the class with you, um, was the Milton, the, when we read the Samson Agonistes, which oh, yes. kind of expands the story of Samson quite substantially. Yes. Does this work in that same way of expanding Genesis in a way with Crumb and Alter's interpretations, kind of adding new light or new parts to stories? That's hard to answer. Um... I, I I would have thought that what what Crum is doing is is very close to what is there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what Milton does in Samson Agonistes is a, a decided departure yeah. from the Book of Judges. Uh, Crum in, in no way uh, departs from this book, but we're 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 made to imagine through his pictures what what's going on. And, and and seeing in a way that probably one hasn't uh, seen or perhaps even wanted to see, um, you know. So many of these characters are are, are really rather ugly. Um, mm-hmm. They're not nice looking. Even even Joseph, uh, once he's shaved, Joseph doesn't look very very nice. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a certain similarity, um, a certain brutality about the uh, the figures. But you know that's that's just part of his his visualization. But it's uh, it, it's still all there. <laughs> also, you know that many of the characters are rather short. Maybe that's um, appropriate for two thousand, three thousand years ago. You notice how how um, how short Adam and Eve are <laughs> next, next to God. Well, well, that, that's interesting though, because that would be a specific choice he he'd make within how he yeah. how he characterizes the folks within the book. Yeah, so. sure, sure. And, and in fact, I think maybe one way to think about this is that there is a long-standing tradition, um, uh, or many traditions within Western culture, of uh, visualizing the Bible. And um, perhaps one dominant tradition is a heroic tradition. It's the tradition of sort yes. of Michelangelo, you know? Yes, that's... Oh, this is not Michelangelo, is it? No, no, it's not... No, oh. uh, I mean, and, and Kramen interviews very much talks about this. He says, you know, he can appreciate someone like Michelangelo, but he feels that Michelangelo is the, you know, the um, uh, ancestor of Frank Frazetta, where he himself... <laughs> 
see, <laughs> sees himself as being the ancestor of uh, Brugal, you know? Yeah, yeah. Crumb is working in the satiric, grotesque tradition, which yes. hasn't, I mean, this is a very vital tradition, but it hasn't yes. often been used to illustrate the Bible. So perhaps that's, that's right. one of the innovations. Oh, that that's, that's an important point to make, yes. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of, can you think of anyone else working in this sort of grotesque, tradition like Hogarth didn't illustrate the Bible, did he? Maybe... Uh, I don't no, think I don't so. Think, I don't think he did. No, no. So, so, so I think that's a very interesting thing. Perhaps the one... Um, visually, there are sort of echoes. Like, I do think... We might we talked about God before with the beard. And perhaps I'm wrong, but do you think that um, there's an element of William Blake in that? There is, but that that is one of the traditions, though, mm-hmm. to, to depict yeah. God as a, a figure with long, streaming hair. Mm-hmm. That that I think he does pick up. Yeah, you know, a a tradition for sure. Sure. I'm wondering, um, on the line of tradition, um, as far what kind of influence would be from, like, say, Reformation era depictions, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with Reformation, because you had the the argument of religious cultures, and so you had a lot of pretty brutal imagery there too. I mean, that was more interpreting um, specific political figures within contexts of yeah. um, different books and stuff, but does that play a role? I'm going to let Zeta answer that. I'm not sure. Jeet? Well, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm not sure. Or am I stretching it too far? Yeah, no, no, <laughs> That's no. A tough I, one. I, um, hmm. I mean, I mean, in terms of talking, like, the sort of Reformation, I, I think his very decision to visualize the Bible... Um, it has to be seen as culturally specific, that not all cultures visualize the Bible. No. And there would be traditions um, that are very hostile to that, um, you know, going back to yes. the sort of ancient Hebrew prohibition against graven images, but later uh, there were sort of like um, iconoclastic movements in uh, uh, the Byzantine Empire, Empire and later in the Reformation. Uh, and then certainly now uh, uh, there's a long-standing prohibitions in Islam. Um, so the very fact that he thinks, uh, he started with the assumption that the Bible can be illustrated, um, uh, you know, places him on one mm-hmm. side of a cultural divide. And it's, it's a cultural divide that yes. is of long standing. Yes. what do you think of the importance of Crumb doing this book as far as his first, like, I mean, here's arguably the most important cartoonist, mm-hmm. and he chooses for his first real big book mm-hmm. to be Genesis. Yeah, well, no, that's an interesting point, because Crumb's previous books um, have or all been sort of collections of stories, and, like, he's never really done anything, you know, that's longer than 20 or 30 pages, the uh, one, aside from the Kafka book, but even that is sort of, like, short, episodic. And it was written by someone else. It was written by someone else. So so, so this is the longest solo work he's ever done. Now, having said that, there's... A l- some people have made this point that, you know, like that Crumb, uh, you know, only does, like, you know, eight to ten pages, and that that's um, a sign that he hasn't, like, kept up with the age of the graphic novel with longer narratives. I, I myself, have never been convinced by that uh, argument. Like, I think eight pages of Crumb is, can be equal <laughs> to, like, 200 pages uh, of someone else, right? Yes. Like, I actually think that the short story, the short works he d- he's did, and certainly, like, you know, I would rather read 20 pages of Alice Munro than 400 pages of Stephen King. Like, I don't think the, <laughs> the, the, the yes. length, uh, you know, dictates uh, merit. Uh, but, so, but having said that, I think, you know, maybe at the back of Crumb's mind, it was a sense that, you know, um, I'm living in the age of, you know, mouse, 
of Jimmy Corrigan um, uh, and many other graphic novels. And he's a he's a very, he's a fairly competitive guy too. And you know he knows. Uh, so so perhaps this is an attempt to like sort of you know upgrade himself for the age of the graphic novel, and really like uh, perhaps uh, triumph over everyone because. You know, he's not just telling an autobiographical story or a fictional story. He's going back to, you know, like the the, the foundational book of Western civilization. <laughs> so, so this is, I mean, if he has a competitive streak, one could certainly say that he's like telling every other cartoonist, "Well, can you top that?" <laughs> yes, yes. Yeah, and, and certainly, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps some of the poets um, that uh, 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 Professor Stanwood uh, studies also had. Uh, that competitive streak. Like, I would imagine that with someone like Milton, part of the choice of doing Paradise mm-hmm. Lost is, you know, like, this is the one way that I can enter into competition with Virgil and Homer, right? Like, this oh, is yes. a, the one story that's powerful enough to put me in that league. And it has to be in English. That's right. As well, yes. And would you say the same with Dante and doing it in the Italian vernacular? Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. Again, I was, I was thinking of the uh, your earlier comment about the Reformation. All sorts of scenes, of course, have been illustrated, mm-hmm. uh, but um, mostly in well, thinking of of uh, very early glass mm-hmm. and illustrations in uh, English churches that I'm most familiar with seeing. Um, uh, you, you you would see you would see the flood or Noah depicted in. Uh, uh, again, in a, a, a more uh, romantic um, and delightful kind of way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I wonder if um, I wonder if one can ever think of Noah in quite the same way. You know, after all, what was the reason for the flood? This is very clear mm-hmm. in, in the illustration, isn't it? Uh, God decides that the world is 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 wicked. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get rid of it, uh, and we all gather into the ark. Well, that's that's also a kind of children's game the, with the Noah and the ark, but nothing is said about how it happened to come about, and also the fact that even after the flood, uh, everything returns to the way it was before. And I, you know, again, I think I think Crumb has done very well to uh, re- remind one of that. So I, I I'm wondering indeed. Uh, about his audience, who all's reading this, or affected by this? Mm-hmm. Well, can you can can that be answered easily right now, Jeet? Well, no. I mean, the, 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 I guess the book is in its early days, so its uh, impact on the audience will probably <laughs> be seen over time. But I mean, it is certainly selling very well. Like, yes, I saw it like on uh, Amazon. It was like number eight, like up there with Dan Brown and uh, <laughs> other popular bestsellers. Yeah, it's not amazing. Yeah, yeah. I, I gather the, the first printing is sold out. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, I mean, I kind of would think that the majority of readers are the sort of um, uh, perhaps secular people who, you know, want to know more about the Bible or have an interest in crumb. I, I'd be curious, like, ultimately, like, the impact on religious readers. And, I, I mean, I, I'd be very curious to see reviews by mm. religious readers and how they respond to it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, there is a kind of irreverence. I, I, I was glad to see Professor Stanwood mention the um, Noah thing, because uh, one of the things is that, um, uh, the cartoonist Paul Karazek pointed yes. out that Noah's three sons 
actually look a little bit like the Three Stooges. Uh, <laughs> and if you know anything about the Sons of Noah, like it's a bit of an apt comparison. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're they're really very unsatisfactory characters. Yeah, <laughs> poor Ham. Yeah. Well, yes. <laughs> but I actually think Crumb was probably influenced by uh, the fact that Shem sounds a lot like Shemp, yeah. who is one of the mm-hmm. Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now. One thing I really got a lot of was his uh, interpretation of the Tower of uh, Babel. Babel, yeah. Babel. Babel. That was really fascinating, um, where he'd use um, all the characters, like he'd insert different languages in there <laughs> to kind of add to that confusion yes. they'd feel at a certain point. <laughs> where does he get this? I think he uses, like, hieroglyphics and yes. just makes it up. Yeah, I don't think it makes any real sense. That's probably the point. Yeah, these these characters are all looking extremely angry and unhappy with each other, and they're all <laughs> speaking different languages. That's uh, right. God is very unhappy uh, as he stands there overlooking the mm-hmm. the city. Kind of like Godzilla. Uh, a, a little like Godzilla. <laughs> yeah. Quite a little like. Yeah. And yeah. then and then Babel is um, destroyed. Mm-hmm. We see nothing more of it. Now, you had some specific um, points that I saw that you had written up uh, where Crumb had taken different liberties or different interpretations or expanded upon that. Oh, um, no. I think the, the point I uh, had made on a blog post thing was simply to note uh, that there are a few occasional places where Crumb departs from Alter. Like he, for like, you know, 90, 95% of the book, he's using Alter's translations. Mm-hmm. And there's a few places where he um, uses sort of um, uh, other language. Uh, uh, often he goes back to the sort of King James Most Bible. Most of King James, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, I mean, it's, I think it's usually um, in places uh, uh, in terms of the clarity of language uh, where, um, uh, just to make the language more accessible. I think the one example I used in my review was um, where under Alter, a character says, am I instead of God who has denied you the fruit of the womb, whereas Crumb has, mm-hmm. so then it's mm-hmm. me, not God, who has denied you the fruit of the womb. So the Crumb yeah, translation... Clarifies, just, doesn't huh? it? it just clarifies. Yeah, yeah, it just clarifies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is, yeah. So um, that, that's the main sort of point. Uh, I made that. The, the, uh, and certainly, I think one reason he did that was, as you mentioned before, Alter has footnotes, uh, literal footnotes at the bottom of the page, so that if there's something that seems awkward or odd, he explains very well like why he worded it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and whereas like, Crumb doesn't have that liberty, so he um, uh, feels it's better to have like a you know, fluid, fluent translation. He does in one part where, I forget whose children it was, where he explained the name of the children and I guess the literary puns within their names. Oh, mm-hmm. yes, that's right. What the names mean mm-hmm. in the Hebrew. Yeah. 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 That, that's helpful. Whose children was that? I can't remember. Well, there are several... Inst- oh. You know, it, it, it's a work of genealogy, isn't it? Genesis. Yeah. I, I rather like those pages of, of little pictures and names. That's partly what you're referring to, but there's mm-hmm. another, another place where... Uh, well, uh, as Benjamin, that that would be an obvious example. That's right. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. 
or or here Isaac yeah. uh, in chapter 21 Isaac the Hebrew means he who laughs that's yeah. the sort of thing he does occasionally that's right yeah yeah, yeah. That, that, that's good I, I know Alter did remark that apart from his own translation of the Pentateuch uh, the best one is the King James Version mm-hmm. he dislikes uh, virtually all modern translations <laughs> of, yeah. um, of, of the Pentateuch apart from his own made that very clear. Yeah, yeah. I said that at many points. And I I mean, to be fair, like, I actually think, you know, he has a point. His translation is very much a great translation. And I think that one of the things to say on behalf of Alter is that there are many people who have the sort of Hebrew, but they don't have the English. That they they know what the words mean, but they don't have the resources of English translated. And there are many people who have the English, but they don't have the Hebrew. Exactly. Uh, Alter is perhaps the the one modern translator who who has is you know fluent in both Hebrew and English. Yes, I think that's I think I'd like to think so. Yes. Yeah. There's a certain sense of importance in creating your own translation too. Isn't it? Isn't go, that true? Yes. Go back to Martin Luther and uh Yeah. Yes. His right. Sure, sure. I mean Alter's clearly has a you know very proprietorial sense and in his review in the New Republic he did sort of say he wasn't like totally pleased that Crumb uh, <laughs> at points altered it but I mean I, I think that you know in, in this case the proprietorial sense is uh, you know justified that there is he has good reason to be proud of uh, what he did. Um, I, I sort of um, did make a point that I thought Alter had been influenced by the, the theories of Walter Benjamin uh, oh, yes. who thought that translation should have some of the foreignness of uh, the um, uh, uh, alien language, uh, but mm-hmm. I, I've since found out that Alter um, dis- uh, vehemently disagrees with that, and he he wants to make it clear that he was not influenced by Walter Benjamin. <laughs> I'm sure that, that sounds very much like him. Yes. Yeah. We're running up to the uh, end of our time slot. Do either of you have any last comments on the book? Well, I mean, uh, I think uh, the, we could certainly talk a lot more about it. There's a lot in the book, and yeah, I think it's a major book, uh, uh, certainly one of the best uh, uh, comic books uh, of the year. Uh, but even beyond that, I think the one thing I would advise readers is that Genesis is not like a novel. It's not like, you know, Dan Brown or one of these paperback <laughs> thrillers that you read on an airplane. Genesis actually requires a lot of time and attention. Uh, and as Professor Stanwood mentioned, there's actually, like, a lot of the stories are sort of small and standalone. So I, I, in reading it, I would recommend people, you know, read it in small doses. Read a few pages every day, and I think that's the way to really get the power of the text. Yeah, that's a good, good thought. Mm-hmm. It's it's interpretive, isn't it? In a way, it, mm-hmm. can one be paradoxical? It's interpretive in a way that isn't really interpretive. Mm-hmm. It, it it interprets, but yet it doesn't. It leaves so much to you. That's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one reason why the text is so powerful. That uh, it has these great stories, but then they're also open to many interpretations. Yes. You know, going back to Milton and much earlier, and Crumb is very much part of this. You know, long tradition. Yes. Of uh, of uh, you know offering another take on these uh, ven- venerable stories. It's an astonishing and an amazing work, really. <laughs> and uh, it's a good book. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist that one. Uh, thank you so much to both of you, and uh, I hope everyone goes out and checks out uh, Genesis by Robert Crumb. Thanks, Jeet. Thanks. It was thanks. great to be here. Thanks, Doctor Sandwood. Thank you. All right. Up next, we have Japanese musicist. Thank you. 
even care Take a little walk Nobody's going to know I'm in senior year It gives you a little free time I'll just use it all at once Took the fence and the lane The bus and the train But an independent to make me look like I've got brains Story up in my head If anybody would ask I'm going to a seminar I'm a That's the way that things were going The Bible's my tomb There's no mention of school My Damascus roads My transistor radio I tune in at night When my mom and my dad start to fight I put on my headphones And I Behind the fog. 